and welcome back to Pros and Content. This is our final episode of 2022. After this, we'll take a short break and be back at it in January. This time, Anda and I came together to share predictions for marketers in 2023. Many of these are based on the conversations we've had as hosts of Pros and Content and Data-Driven CMO. We have three big predictions, and they are... No, just kidding. You have to listen to the episode to find out. One thing I will say is they're all rooted in the recession that we seem to be staring down. Now is definitely the time to figure out how to tie your marketing efforts to ROI. Sprinkled throughout is some practical advice. And we also want to know, what are your predictions for the year ahead? Email me, ellen at notch.com to chime in. And of course, if you like what you've heard, I hope you subscribe. So with that, we have mainly three big predictions that we're going to anchor into. But before I get to what those are, they're really being prompted by that R word, which is the recession. Everybody's got the possibility of budget cuts looming over their heads. In some of the worst cases, you've already lost coworkers because companies have had to cut back. They're anticipating cutbacks. But I had a great conversation with a woman named Brandy Sanders. She is a VP of DemandGen over at Observe AI. She said that data defends what marketing does. She was the person who, back at the kind of the original recession, at least in my life, 2008, was managing a group of marketers. And she realized that as the recession, the economic environment changed around her, marketing is considered a very light touch sort of department. It's very fluffy. People don't feel like you can tie a lot of what you're doing to real business outcomes. So she started to do that. So she said, data defends what marketing does. How can we protect the work we're doing and explain to sales that we are generating that revenue? Which I just thought was unique. I think we're starting to see this more and more where marketers are tying their work to revenue. But I think it's especially important now. So and I want to just kind of open that up. Where are you as a business leader? And as you talk to these marketing leaders, where are these conversations taking you? Yeah. So I was sharing with you an example from a conversation that I had earlier this week with a friend of mine. He's an entrepreneur whose company got acquired by a larger company. And within that larger company, he runs a division that recently was also appointed as CMO. And as an entrepreneur who has sold into CMOs for more than 10 years, I was so curious to hear what were his first actions. And I was, I don't know if shocked, but, you know, a surprise maybe just to see that he basically said, look, we have $50 million in budget here. And my first decision was to pause all of it and to just see what wow. And I thought that was, it kind of sounded like an elimination diet, like he was going to pause the whole thing, see what happens, and then add things back in to understand how it moves the needle. And to me, what that signaled, especially given that this is a B2B company that sells a lot of their products online. So in theory, it shouldn't be that hard to track. What that signaled to me is a few things. I think one, marketing continues to be a bit of an esoteric function, even mm-hmm. when it shouldn't be. But I think that partially that could come actually not just from lack of tools or lack of frameworks, but maybe lack of discipline. I think what happens when you go through a bull market and this this kind of crazy growth period is that people just kind of throw a lot of money. You end up hiring a lot of people who know how to spend a lot of money. But I think now as we enter this phase, call it recession, call it contraction, whatever it is, I think the people who know how to spend less money and isolate the things that are working and have really clear, concise arguments around it are going to be the ones that are the most impactful within their own organizations. Yeah, I think that's a good way to frame it because a lot of times budget holders get skittish 
I don't want to say scared. That's not necessarily fair. But I think during a recession, budget holders get skittish and they just need to wait, especially now, because we don't know if it's going to really be how bad it'll be, right? Budget holders are starting to say, we're going to wait. I think what's also disorienting is Hmm. that we don't know exactly if it's a recession, if it's not a recession. I think the indicators are also confusing. The level of employment is extremely high. That's unusual for going into a recession. The inflation is high, which is indicative of going to a recession. So there's a lot of different indicators and everyone's trying to jump to a conclusion. And I think the reality is we just don't know. So when you're asked Mm -hmm. to plan for uncertainty, I think some people tend to become even more drastic than if they're asked to plan for a predictable downturn. What I hope is that we just get more of an understanding of what's going to happen, that the indicators become a little bit clearer and that we can just kind of focus on getting through it. Yeah. I like that you said that it's the uncertainty of it is making people even less likely to do something about it. If there were a clearer path as to what's about to happen, people would know what the answer is. If it's going to be a recession, big one, you know, there's the decision tree is made for you. Whereas in this kind of will they, won't they situation, you don't have the information that you need to move on. So we've had a couple of people chiming in. One person said the marketing team needs to measurably make the revenue team more effective. And that's we're going to talk about that a little bit later too. That's one of our predictions is you have to start talking to your revenue team in terms that they understand and proving that value to their team, showing that they're getting more and more at-bats. I would phrase it as you have to get your sales and revenue team to advocate for you. They have to defend the role of marketing. I think that's real success when you can get to that. Yeah. We had a question come in too from Kimberly. She said, do you think tying to leads will be a key marker of success next year or in a recession? I think that at a high level, the punchline, yes. But if we want to get just a tiny bit more nuanced, I think it's not just about lead volume. I also think it could be about lead velocity and lead quality. I think it could be about increasing LTV, which is lifetime value of a customer. Maybe it's about decreasing CAC. But I think the the punchline is everything that is done, whether it's a clear investment or some project that doesn't even have investment attached to it, but everything that a marketing team does has to be connected to a change in a variable that has a clear way of measuring it. Yes, I completely agree. And one of the things that we're starting to do here at Notch too, just in our own marketing team, is to decouple the idea that everything is going to lead to an opportunity and instead look at it more as progress. So like you said, to where it's like advancing through the funnel or funnel velocity, how can we get them from one step to the next a little bit faster or even just move them at all? It flows a little bit into our first point, which is death of the cheap acquisition. A lot of people think that if you can get your cost per lead down, or even your customer acquisition cost, if you're looking broadly down, that you're winning. You're doing the right thing because you're spending money efficiently. What your and my answers just said, though, is that you can bring in as many leads as you want, but what they need to do is convert to that next stage. So Mm -hmm. if you're very top of funnel heavy... That's fine. I hope you bring in many, many impressions. And then I hope those impressions on LinkedIn or wherever you're getting them turn into, say, a LinkedIn follower. And if you're getting that follower, they start to engage with you. If they start to engage with you, they start to come to your events. Suddenly, they're in your ecosystem. Like, What is it? You need to start looking to that next step. You can't just say, I brought in a million impressions. My job here is done. So how are you seeing that too, kind of in a broader sense with the paid acquisitions? 
Yeah, so I think I'm going to take a second to first explain why we came up with the strong statement that the death of cheap paid acquisition is here. So as CEO, I look and I guess I'm very in touch with the investor world and the board. And if you look at public companies and even private investors, the messages in the past kind of two years up until about six months ago were pretty clear. Um, investors were saying scale and velocity matters a lot. It was kind of like growth at all costs. And so the companies that were growing fastest were getting the highest multiples, whether that was on the public market and the private market. People used the number of folks that you hire as a proxy for success, just like they use the number of leads that you bring in as a proxy for success. As the investor mentality has shifted to profitability, to efficient growth, and so on and so forth, so has the way CEOs think, the way boards think, and ultimately the way marketing teams think. What that means is that in this world where we're thinking about efficient growth and profitability, it actually <clears throat> matters less that you can just point to the volume numbers and it matters so much more that you have a concise explanation around whatever numbers you can defend as long as you can argue that those numbers are high quality. So that's yeah. kind of the context that has created this reality for marketers that it's now about quality and it's now about moving people and measuring how you're moving people through every single stage. Absolutely. And that's where too, the reason that we added the word cheap in there is because if you're going for quality, you need to possibly adjust these expectations up. You might wind up spending more per lead, more per customer, but that's a more loyal lead. It's a more loyal customer. It's someone who will ultimately spend more time with you. We had a good quote actually from Vineet Mera. He is CMO over at Chime. And this is what he said. Basically what I just said, like looking at your full stack. So you can't just, like I said, you can't stop where your job happens to end. You need to look at the entire customer journey. And that, of course, expands after the paperwork is signed. Are they a good customer? Are they a long-lasting customer? You might need to increase your CAC, customer acquisition cost, and work on conversion rates because that quality improves. So that was one of your data-driven CMO interviews was with Vineet. I think another part of that conversation with Vinit though was the flip side of the statement, which is the importance of organic growth. And yeah. I think this is where I get really bullish around content. I mean, I think content is just an incredibly effective mechanism to acquire, engage, and increase the quality of the relationship with an audience you already have engaged. I think content is sort of, regardless of mm -hmm. whether it's a bull market or a bear market, it's, it's still super important. But I think now as we look at this notion of efficient growth and increasing the quality of relationships and the quality of clients and leads, content is absolutely key because it's so much cheaper to create high quality, engaging, valuable content that you can use to bring people to you in an organic mechanism, therefore assuring that that audience is an audience you've earned the right to own. And I think that's a really important statement because as opposed to kind of throwing a lot of money into Facebook or LinkedIn and just engaging people in kind of a, an environment you cannot control and in a transient way, by using content to bring people to you, even if you're putting paid behind that promotion to bring people to you, you're earning the right to then own that relationship going forward. And that moment where a person feels enough value from that relationship where they want to give you some of their data or at least an intention that they want to continue engaging with you, I think is a really key moment and one that marketers should really focus on over the next six months. Yeah, it lends a lot of trust. It lends a lot of understanding of your actual target market in that sense. Do you feel like people are cutting their spends? 
Yeah, 100%. I think there's a an overall focus on do more with the pipeline we already have or try to get more money from customers that we already have. But I think in general, honestly, beta acquisition is facing headwinds because it's almost never been able to very clearly prove ROI. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a mechanism via which now the big networks are going to say, okay, we're willing to play more of the game and Here's that we're going to show you. But for as long as paid, it's funny that we call it acquisition. I would say it's it's not an acquisition channel. It's like a borrowing eyeballs channel. So for mm-hmm. as long as it's more of a borrowing attention versus acquiring an audience, I think it's going to be hurt by what's happening now. Yeah. And to me, it's interesting what you said about it's impossible or it's difficult to prove ROI because that's something I've struggled with as a marketer in my career to where you are running ads, even if it's something right within your target market. The expectation is that they will convert into business and that there's a pretty straight line from one to the other. And that's not the right metrics to be judged on. Kind of like we talked about moving someone from stage one to stage two. It's asking you to prove that you moved them from stage zero to stage 11 Mm -hmm. instead of all of these incremental changes. So I don't know that marketers have had the right metrics before now. I think that if you're talking to revenue they're expecting revenue metrics. They're hoping that you can say something that is ROI in the language that they're speaking. Whereas Mm -hmm. we as marketers, we're very set on the metrics that we've had available to us. It's changing now. I think we have different metrics. We're starting to uncover more and more of the middle, more and more of that attribution piece. Yeah. It's been difficult. This is like a... I'm going to say something that's self-serving about Notch, but we're not the only company that's helping marketers become more articulate around this. But even before you bring on a platform like Notch to help create clarity and transparency, you first have to align your business strategy to your KPIs, to your tactics, and to your measurement framework. Nothing is going to be a proxy for that discipline. And without that discipline, it's pointless to measure. Because if you don't know what you're measuring for, then you don't know what you're getting. You don't know what to optimize for. First, discipline and create a forcing function to really bring your team together to align strategy with KPIs, with creative, with tactics, etc. And then figure out what is the best platform that's going to support the kind of KPI and measurement framework that you have. Yes. RSVP David Brown talks about this a lot. We have a great blog post about it. But this is just a way to visualize what you just said. So the vision at the top here is the organizational vision. So making sure that your goals for your marketing team don't stop at the lead marketer, the head of marketing there. Everything else has to ladder up and up and up and up. How can you show that you're moving the business forward? So the way that this winds up working is, you know, you've got your top vision, then you have your business outcomes. You can then tie those to your own objectives. Then that's where you get the KPIs and the tactics with which to track them or to execute against them. Our director of content, Phoebe Noche, had this really great point on one of our podcasts though that... Because we're working with proxy metrics a lot of the time, it's really enticing as a marketing department to start from the bottom up to say, well, we can measure this. So why Mm -hmm. don't we try to affect that? And that's Mm -hmm. how you get bogged down in those little details. And when you try to take that back to the rest of the organization, they say, it didn't affect me. So can I go to my next meeting now? Mm -hmm. And it's not connected to the overall business strategy and reality. I think that's that's completely true. That's why I use the word discipline. I don't think anything else can replace that. And as our COO Ben says, it's simple, but it's not easy. And so one of the things that I think David Brown does really well is force a team to sit 
with the tension between the vision, the business strategy, the objectives, the outcomes, the tactics, and what's measurable and what's possible. There's always a path forward. I think that the belief that you can't do it, that somehow there's this investment that is more esoteric is just false. You can always do it. There's always good progress. Yeah. yeah. Even if you're not looking at the exact same data sets, if you can't truly tie to something there, there are those proxy metrics that you can use, but there are also ways that might not be completely rooted in math metrics, but there are something anecdotal you can start to track just to understand. That wraps up a little bit about the death of the cheap acquisition. We started to talk a little bit about the framework because we also think that every marketing dollar is going to be under scrutiny, which we'll get to in a minute, because the marketing dollars we think might be under the most scrutiny and most at risk for the chopping block are brand budgets. I think brand is most at risk because it is so up in the sky and it is so hard to draw that line from brand awareness down to whatever else works. I've seen at least a lot of correlation studies done. You can see X brand lift results in certain amounts of revenue. That, of course, has to go company by company. Well, I think there's also the question of how do you convince your CFO that a brand lift study is a good way to measure impact. Brand budgets have been cut significantly, up to 80-90%. When brand budgets are still being invested, it's usually because there's a mechanism to really clearly measure at least the reach and the targeted reach, if not the clear ROI. So what I mean by that is when talking to CMOs, they would say things like, we've cut our TV advertising budget, but we are continuing to invest in streaming platforms and advertising within the streaming platforms because the reach is more guaranteed and easier to measure. I was just going to say, the idea there being you don't have hardly any control over who a TV commercial is aired to because it's on a network versus if it's streaming, you have some more demographic information to work from. Yeah, you know exactly who's watching. I mean, the streaming platforms gives you a tremendous amount of visibility and transparency as to who saw it exactly at what time, as opposed to a bit more of the paneling guessing game that comes with traditional TV That being said, there are companies, there are industries that are a lot more resilient and that are choosing to use this time to invest. And so another interesting insight is that for the Super Bowl, the ad slots are completely sold out and it was the highest yet again, you know, they beat the record of the highest price per slot. So we're seeing these interesting headwinds, tailwinds and conflicting insights. But I do think that for those of us working in technology and finance and a few other industries, there are just some very clear headwinds that ultimately go into affecting the brand budget. Yeah, and it falls back into that category of there are ways to make sure your dollars are being spent more efficiently. Where if you can go from that broad audience that says, is it a million people? Yes, it's a million people. And certainly within there, you'll find your B2B buyers because we are all watching TV or some kind of show. Yeah, What you can say is, I still need a million people. But now you can take that, the 10% of them who are the right, now it's 20%, now it's 30%. Those dollars are working a lot harder for you. Your quality has gone way up. We had a quote from Ashley. She just says that you can't come into a room and say, hey, I want to run a multi-million dollar awareness campaign. I need to have irrefutable data that tells that story, which is, I think, just a good way to wrap that up to where we like to lean on anecdotal evidence as marketers when we don't have real data. You need to have that holistic view of things. Understand what everything leads to, to leads to, to leads to. So that leads us though to... Our final point, which is that every marketing dollar 
is going to be under scrutiny. We hit on this a little bit with our vision and framework. That's one of the solutions that we recommend all the time. Make sure that everything you do from a marketing standpoint can be laddered up to a bigger business objective. Let's break it down a little. You and I were talking a little bit about this, but we keep saying, oh, you know, we have to measure the journey throughout. We have to measure the transition from one stage to the next stage to the next stage. But the reality is that a lot of marketing teams, if not almost all marketing teams, aren't structured in that way. They're not structured Mm -hmm. to have a mid-funnel marketing team. And most marketing teams have the first touch gang that focuses on bringing people in. (laughs) And they have the last touch gang that focuses on getting people to the sales team or into the buying flow. So who's the middle team? Who's the team that really tries to engage someone and work with them over the course of weeks or months to eventually get them into a place where they're ready to buy? I really hope that growth leaders are going to own the complete journey, not just the end of the journey. I think we have to assume that performance is not just about the final conversion. It's about understanding what drives conversion along the way. And to answer the other point around the validation that we're getting from customers. Just to jump in, anybody who didn't see the question, Elliot asked, what kind of validation are we not getting from customers that the more detailed measurement in the middle has proven useful and worth the investment? So go on. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) Yeah, I think the most important priorities for marketers right now are as we said, a little bit less about volume and growth and let's just like show big numbers and a little bit more about cutting cost and continuing to maybe deliver the same growth rate with less investment. So the vast majority of the use cases, especially over the last six months for our platform, have really been about uncovering the content that breaks journeys, the content that's somewhere in the middle just gets someone to leave and not come back or maybe the content that gets people into a place where they're ready to make a decision. But for whatever reason, there's no clear conversion mechanism around that content. And so the validation we're getting is just in seeing that the conversion increases, that the acceleration of the conversion increases as well. And that's what we want to see from our platform. Yeah, to put that into an anecdote, if you don't mind, we have... So we're at Notch, we're using Notch. Our director of content is using it to track all of our own journeys What she is seeing is that our use cases convert. I don't know that that's a surprise to any marketer on the call. Seeing those showing up in conversion journeys meant that we could then start pointing people to it. And now the time to conversion has diminished. It's one small story for us, but it is something that's completely affected the way that we're starting to construct those journeys. Though I think what you said too, Anda, about the places that journeys break can be just as important. So kind of like that anecdote or the story I heard about the warplanes that came back and they started to really beef up the wings where they kept seeing bullet holes. Someone finally said, well, you have to look at the planes that didn't come back. Those are your actual problems. Mm -hmm. That's what you're, we're able to find when you can see where people just kind of, in my brain, it's like the dam has been put up there and you're hoping to break that down so that people can start to flow a bit more freely. Yeah. And I was going to say, I've been thinking a lot about chat GPT and all this innovation in AI Mm -hmm. content creation. And what does it mean for the world of content, for the world of marketing? And I'm not going to come up with all the predictions around this, but I think a pretty clear one for me is that there's just going to be more content. Like the volume is going to go up. And I think oftentimes marketers believe that they just need to make for the sake of making. Like, oh, the product team in this business unit needs more content about XYZ, or we need more thought leadership, or we need to have a position on this. 
And so you end up in this volume game. And the reason I keep making the point to marketers that please use our product to make less better is because we've seen time and time again across every one of our customers <clears throat> that 70% of their content, it just isn't effective. And that's not to say that 70% of the content is neutral. That actually is to say that it could be distracting from a journey that could be converting faster. And so as you think about where to make your investments, there was real opportunity cost in creating content assets that are not going to, to be impactful. So having a system to constantly purge the stuff that is not neutral or negative and a system to understand what really floats the surface is critical, especially in the next six months. Yeah. It's also something that I'm feeling as a marketer, right? To where we are a pretty lean team. We can't be chasing red hearings. Another thing we're able to do with a notch data is to put it up against Google Analytics. And it's like, here is a page that's getting tons and tons of traffic. What we can do is take that over to notch and say, it's getting tons of traffic. What's it doing? It's driving tons of traffic. That's fantastic. It's not the traffic that is interested in a demo. So don't need to worry about creating the next thing based off of that particular topic. There's so many false positives when you look at traditional analytics. And I think that goes back to this idea that you have to understand what your business KPI, what is your strategy? Like, what are you trying to do? Because if your goal is to increase overall acquisition or increase brand awareness, there's ways where you presumably you could benefit from some level of high level engagement. But if your goal is very specific and it's about increasing the lifetime value of a specific group of customers of a cohort, then you have to get so much more specific in your content strategy and what you measure for and so on. I think the one thing that a lot of us don't have any issue with is we all created a bunch of content over the last two years, digital content especially. So we have a lot that's sitting out there that was just created and created and created while we were all in figure it out mode that may or may not be working for us and uncovering what that is can save you a lot of time now that the tide is shifting to where we need to be creating as specific slash little as possible. Yes. COVID was about volume. It was about getting your voice out there. I think so many brands started their content function during COVID and just made a lot. And the questions around like why and how and how are we measuring weren't quite there. They're all starting now. So I'm also hoping that people can leave here with a few ideas of how to start to uncover what is working. So final thing is just a little roundup of some super practical advice that we heard throughout pros and content as far as what you can be doing to prove the value, prove the ROI of your marketing efforts. So Blake Strozik, he's a demand manager, said, find your baseline metrics. So understand what you're currently working with. And then make sure you are comparing apples to apples. So don't compare your best month to your worst month. Compare your best month to your best month. That sort of thing. Camille is maybe one of my favorites because it's all about making new connections and finding new people reaching across the aisle. Make friends with your marketing ops because they're the person who owns your dashboards. They're also the person who's going to be talking to Rev. They're the people who know what the metrics are that the rest of your teams are going to be tied to. You could go to them and just start spitballing and say, is there a way that I can affect that number and that we could track it with the numbers we have available to us? Karina, make sure your A-B tests have some control groups associated with them. That way you can prove that progress. Something to show that what you're doing is truly working. You have some leading metrics that you can then start to finesse. And then finally, Avi's advice, which I think if you're a content marketer, this one's going to be tricky. It says live and breathe the metrics that you're being held to. The reason I included that is because that's also being proven true for me. 
in my particular experience. I can come back to Anda specifically with an idea and say, I have a really good gut feeling. And I think you're going to say, that's great. I trust you. And you need to see some metrics when it's over. I think I would want you to articulate how you'd be thinking about measuring your gut. Mm -hmm. I'm all about gut. I mean, I think some of our best work comes from our intuition. I'm all about connecting to that. Yeah. But because I'm, as I said, a big data nerd, I'm always just trying to ask myself, what are my assumptions? In what ways could I be wrong? What questions am I not asking myself? And then ultimately, how can I build some type of framework to have a data answer? And maybe the data answer is not everything, but I think it has to be something. I think that nuance is what makes the difference. What I think you said there is that you are happy for the nuance, for the gut feel to continue to exist in marketing, but you don't get to get by anymore with only that. There are ways to show progress. And as a leader, as someone who cares about a budget as we head into a recession, you need me to measure myself, to hold myself accountable to something that is not just my day-to-day work, but is actually going to affect the business. Just to say, I've heard this a lot from a lot of CEOs that the folks who have sort of grown through the ranks of brand and creative are going to really struggle to take the CMO role in this kind of new generation of marketing. And I don't think I'm as definitive as that. Like I, I really believe that that is a very strong foundation to have as a marketer. I think now is an incredible time to become familiar with how to surround your work and your logic and your process with data. I know it's intimidating at times, but it's ultimately not rocket science. It's really just logic. Like, How does my work ultimately affect the bottom line of the business? And how can I break that down in a really simple, clear, articulate way? Yeah. I think the other thing that we heard, I want to say Jill Kramer said this, is that if you're not the numbers person, you can surround yourself with people who are and you can trust them. You can have really solid people there supporting you. And if you all share those same goals, you'll have the right conversations to help you move the needle. Yep. Great. So just to recap, we had the overarching thing, which is that the recession basically already has affected a lot of us. And you need to have that in mind because it's going to affect a lot of decisions that are coming out in the next couple of months. Because of that, we are predicting death of the cheap paid acquisition. You need to understand quality might trump volume in this particular case. So it's okay to look at that holistically and say, we actually need to spend a little bit more per acquisition. We're going to see brand budgets cut. And that could also be kind of anybody who feels like you're a bit nebulous, anybody who can't get more specific about who you're targeting. You need to understand who it is that you're really reaching understand if there are levers that you can pull to make that work a little bit better. Finally, just every marketing dollar is going to be under scrutiny. So you need to be able to show some ties to the business outcomes that your business cares about. So with that, I want to say thanks, Anda. I think this has been super. Thank you, Ellen, for putting this together. Appreciate it. And everyone who tuned in to listen. Well, thanks very much. I'll also just throw out there too, if you're interested in chatting with me about any of this, because I'm nerdy about this stuff too, my email is ellen at notch.com. That does it for our 2022 season. We'll be back in January, so be sure to subscribe and we'll see you there for more conversations with the best growth marketing pros. For links to the episodes we referenced today, head to the show notes or find it at notch.com slash podcast. And if you really miss us, come find us on LinkedIn.